This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. Welcome to Bloomberg Business of Sports. Before we get to today's interview, I want to point out this was a conversation that I did tape early last week and ahead of the sports world and the entire world reacting to the death of George Floyd. We've obviously seen a lot of athletes and teams come out with statements, but just wanted to give you a sense of when this happened. I am so happy to be joined by George Pine of Bruin Sports Capital. He's the former CEO at NASCAR, former president of IMG Sports and Entertainment. He has done so many things and full confession, full disclosure. I have known him for probably about a quarter of a century now. We met in Atlanta way back in the day, and it's a different world we're living in, and it's amazing what he's accomplished in the interim. George, really nice to hear your voice. Thanks, uh, Jason. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm excited to uh, to chat with you, in part because we're obviously living in a very different time. And I guess I want to start by asking you, what's sort of life like for you right now, running this fund, running this business, You know, knowing how much you are literally and figuratively out and about in the world uh, doing deals? What does work look like for you right now? Well, you know, first, we, you know, we have a number of four, five portfolio companies that actually operate in 15 different countries, um, 30 or 40 offices around the world, and, and one of them is based in northern Italy. So, but, you know, with Zoom and technology, uh, I found that we're in a great, you know, we have great CEOs, so it makes what we do a lot easier. But with Zoom, uh, you're able to pretty much stay in really good contact with uh, with your portfolio companies. So that's been terrific, and through the Zoom technology and Blue Jeans or whatever, you're able to um, you know speak with people and prospect. So we've been pretty pretty lucky in the fact that we've been incredibly efficient. I do think it's hard to acquire a company without spending time with the management team in person. So that's the only negative, and of course, it's hard to you know everybody's earnings are hit, so it's hard to. It's harder to understand that, and also harder to um, determine what the fu- future looks like. So that's that's a little tricky, but not impossible. But but overall, you know, I feel very fortunate. You know, there's so many people that are suffering, and so many people that are performing heroic work. And I think, from our standpoint, we we find ourselves to be in a pretty fortunate position. And our companies have held up really well. Right. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, the world of sports has has ground to a halt in many ways. And and you are, and we can talk more about this. I mean, you're investing in sports in the broadest sense. And, you know, you and I spent some time together at our Power Players Summit. It feels like 150 years ago, but it was in February, early February of this year down in Miami. And, you know, you laid out, I think, a a very compelling case at, at that point about, you know, investing heavily in technology and you guys have invested in experience. What does that look like at the moment, given the that everything really is shut down? Although, and we'll talk about this, we're seeing sort of glimmers of light and, and things coming back. Well, I think, you know, it's a, a lot. So I first would start off with the sports business in general. You know, it's really been hard hit. I mean, it, it's much, very much like the airlines or the hotel or restaurants. I mean, we, we can't run the events, and so the entire ecosystem, you know, has been ground to a complete halt. And people don't quite understand the economic impact of sports. I mean, in the United States, it's millions of jobs in the ecosystem. 
So it's not just the owners and the players. There are pe- real people that are being impacted by the games not being played. I mean, you, know, you think about a game day, you've got concession, the people that are doing the food and beverage, and the people that do the merchandise, and the people that collect the tickets, the security, the parking people, the, the restaurants and bars around the games. I mean, there's this stat. Tuscaloosa, Oklahoma, I mean, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, one game impact for the Alabama Crimson Tide to that community is $20 million a weekend. So sports is big business. Wow. Hold on a second. So I want you to say that again. So one one week, one football weekend in Tuscaloosa, University of Alabama, $20 million. $20 $20 million a weekend. So if you think of just take about the impact of college football, I mean, they play over five or six home games. If Alabama doesn't play this year, which I hope they do, it's 100 to $120 million a year to that community. And if the games are in half capacity, which is probably likely, it's half of that. And, that, and you can extrapolate that to Madison, you know, Wisconsin or Columbus, Ohio or Knoxville, Tennessee or Athens, Georgia. And so sports, you know, it's big business, and it's quite an ecosystem. And so that that business and that ecosystem has been hard hit. And, yes, these games are going back on television, and that's good because that uh, begins to get the business back going up again. But the you know, sports is still a live event game day business, and that's going to be significantly hit this year. And I think it's going to be a hit for 12 to 24 to 36 months. And I think it's going to have long-term implications on the game day experience. And at the same token, it's going to have uh, implications. Um, I think, you're, like any other business, you're going to see technology uh, be adapted and accelerating uh, techn- technology in, in sports. So I think, really, when you look at the pandemic, there's two things. One, the game day experience is going to have to change and be improved. Um, you know, standing in line for a hot dog, uh, you know, you're probably not going to be as comfortable as you used to be. Right. Standing in line to go into a venue, you're not going to be feel the same. How food's presented, uh, being crammed into a, a merchandise store, the whole experience is going to have to be reinvented, which is probably a positive, but in the short run, an economic challenge. And then the other positive is going to be because of technology and people consuming content on different platforms, more and more that's going to accelerate and be pushed out. So I think there will the acceleration of technology and new platforms as a result of the pandemic, like other industries, is going to be uh, expedited. So that to me, when I look back from the pandemic, I think uh, the game day experience will be reinvented. Technology will be accelerated. And then the th- other thing you're going to have to look at is just what does this dislocation mean, you know, uh, in terms of team own ownership? Right. You know, some teams are going to be hit, uh, owners could be in different affected industries. Some teams may not be as capitalized as others. And then I think college sports is an area to watch because college football underwrites the 80% of the revenue at these schools. And then maybe basketball might be 20%. In a place like Duke or Kansas, it'll be more. And if you look at these other sports, there, you know, baseball right now will only come back if the players take less money. And the same thing with NBA and NHL. You know, there's nobody, the players aren't getting paid in college. And college is at least a 50% or more live gate business. And so there's no way to replace that income. That's going to create an economic hardship on universities at a time when they're already feeling economic hardship in terms of tuition and state funding. So I think college sports is a place to watch 
the dislocation. Um, and again, because it has big media deals, but still more than 50% live gate, that live gate number is going to take a pretty good hit this year and maybe in years to come. And the last point on the live gate is going into this, it was getting harder and harder to generate uh, ticket sales for every sport. And this now is going to intensify that issue. So those are kind of the things I think to look at. On the opportunity side, a reinvention of game day, acceleration of digital, but also watching closely what the dislocation means. Well, let's talk about college sports for a second because it's an area I'm fascinated with. As I mentioned uh, in the introduction, you and I first met down in Atlanta a a lifetime ago, and obviously you go down south, and and notably a number of the towns you mentioned uh, when you were talking about the economic impact are right there in the SEC. And I do wonder about colleges and college sports and the the knock-on effect and how different colleges deal with that i mean keep me honest here you played college football right i mean you understand sort of how it how it all uh fits together will in your estimation schools protect the marquee sports and and maybe to the detriment of some of the lesser sports how do they wrestle with this well, again, long-term college football will be fine because college football provides the revenue yeah. in most cases to support all the other sports. So if you're in another sport, you're rooting for college football. As an example, I was speaking to a leader in the Olympic movement in Europe, and he was asking me what was going to happen with college football because they were concerned on the drain of revenue on Olympic sports in the United States. And, you know, people don't really talk about it too often, that college football underwrites the costs for all those other sports. And so as that revenue from football declines because of the pandemic, and again, it's going to decline because it's 50% or more gate, that's going to have a real impact on all the other sports. And you see now a number of schools dropping other sports. The only two sports typically at a school that generate revenue are football and basketball. Again, mostly it's football. Yeah. And so the other sports are costs, and as the revenues go away, there's going to have to find a way to either supplement those costs or cut those costs. And of course, as you know, uh, in higher education today, with going on with the pandemic, uh, the cost of higher education, just in terms of keeping students safe, and also questioning tuition revenue, whether you know, people go online versus going to college, they're already in a difficult spot. So it's going to put a lot of pressure on athletic budgets. The other little impact that athletics typically have, which uh, helps universities, why universities are so enthusiastic, is that it also supports fundraising. Right. So at a time when you're, you need funding, you know, it's going to hit your fundraising as well. So it's going to have big implications. That's why when you think of the ecosystem, you have all those coaches, all those trainers for all these different sports that are depending on that revenue. And that revenue might not be there. And not to mention, again, Tuscaloosa or these other small towns that depend on those games for their communities. And so you also mentioned something that that I want to pick up on around ownership, because especially in baseball right now, and we're taping this on May 27th, and there's literally discussions ongoing right now, It's it sounds like, as we speak between the owners and, and the players in Major League Baseball, and you are at least hearing a lot from owners about the economic pain that they will suffer. And they clearly are thinking about that ecosystem as well around a Major League Baseball stadium. So 
what do you make of that, of the arguments, especially having, you know, run a company that represented athletes at, at IMG, this debate between sort of labor and, and management that we're having in many major sports, but it seems like most pointedly in baseball. Well, baseball is harder because, first of all, they have more games, and therefore they sell the most tickets. So the 70 million tickets a year they have to sell. And so because, again, those sports that are more reliant on the live gate, yeah. it's more challenging. And so, therefore, they're harder hit, and, and it really does come uh, about economics because it doesn't pencil out to play the baseball games just for the media money. And so, therefore, they have to go back to the players and say, for in order for this to be economically sensible, I need a reduction, and then you're into a negotiation. And the unfortunate part of ownership and labor labor negotiations, they're typically contentious and typically take place over two years. And now they have to take place over, you know, a very short amount of time, which only amplifies that. And I think baseball faces the most uh, challenging situation because they play the most games and have to sell the most tickets. They're right. most dependent on the gate, and so. It is it is challenging, and that's the unique dynamic as a result of the pandemic. Well, it's also interesting to think about, you know, baseball, and as someone who knows sports as well as you do, you know, I'm sure you appreciate it as much as I do, you know, baseball in its sort of iconic place in American history, it, it also feels like that's coming into play in all of this, and America's pastime and all these different things, and it becomes for better or worse, kind of part of the debate here, right, between you know, the owners and the players. And it's hard to imagine, maybe, uh, going into this, but, you know, patriotism feels like it's part of the argument here, which is just kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I think, you know, sports, and, you know, you never miss something until you don't have it. And I right. think it's fair to say that sports not being on television uh, is a real void. There's, there's not somebody, you know, sports is great reality TV. You have winners and losers and heroes and villains, and it's it's always changing. And, you know, sports represents 88 or even out of the top 100 programs on television. And, you know, at a time when viewership is high because everybody's at home, you don't have the most popular uh, form of of entertainment. And so, you know, there is a, a great deal of interest. And, you know, even take a look this weekend with uh, Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, and it's the highest-rated golf uh, broadcast in, in cable history. And so, you know, people want sports. Sports represent America, and, of course, you know, baseball is the national pastime. So, you know, it's all kind of in the puzzle. And, you know, I think I'm, I want to be optimistic. I think the players and the owners will work it out, but it is most uh, – most exasperated in baseball because they have so many seats to sell, and therefore it's uh, it's fi- more financially challenging perhaps than others. So you mentioned the match, too. When you look at that uh, as someone who works in the business of sports but also is you know has a, a really good track record of being opportunistic, what do you see there in terms of opportunity? Because, you know, you've got the camera placements, you've got the sort of live in, you know, sort of in-match commentary and them giving each other a hard time. You've got Charles Barkley weighing, you know, you've got all these different elements. Does a light go on in your brain or do you see that sort of thing and say, oh, okay, well, that validates what I think about this element of technology or how do you look at something like that? I think as an opportunity, uh, as you point out, you're going to be able to now see different types of formats for all the different sports 
And I also think you're going to see real enhancements in broadcasting, like you're seeing, bring the fans closer, the viewers closer. So all these sports this summer have an opportunity to reinvent the broadcast experience and probably will have to without fans in the stands. And so I think that's going to be another positive development coming out of the pandemic, that the broadcast experience will probably be enhanced. Like every other business, you're going to have to pivot and adapt and find a way to better present your product in this new environment. And I think you're going to see that, uh, you know, as an example, again, the PGA Tour is going to come back in mid-June in Texas, and they're going to have full fields for four, five, six, seven, eight weeks. So that's going to be very different. Actually, it's going to be better because all the best players are going to be playing every week, and that's going to give the tour an opportunity to showcase compelling golf competition with you know compelling athletes. And so the question is, what innovations can you bring along with that to even make it more interesting? And so I do think that without the fans, you're going to see people try to innovate on the broadcasting side. And, you know, some good things are going to come out of a bad thing. And and those people that do it better are probably going to do better than those that don't. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, one place where you saw that, I think, really up close and personal, where a driver of that was in NASCAR. And, And so I want to talk to you about your experience there because, you know, I think it's easy to forget, probably not for you, but easy for the rest of us to forget sort of where NASCAR was when you came in, sort of family business and not a sort of family business, a family business. And, you know, what you undertook there was no small feat in many ways. As you look back on that, what do you take that you apply now? What were sort of the catalytic lessons, as it were, from your time at NASCAR? As a point to our prior point, I mean, when we went from really cable television and network television, and, you know, the David Hill was the president of Fox Sports. He's known all around the world as one of the, probably one of the best production minds in the history of sports in the world. He's running Fox Sports at the time. And what he brought to the sport at that time was, you know, better camera angles, sound, and all kinds of different creativity that catapulted the sport to a new level. You know, one of the things in life, you know, you have to find an opportunity. You know, my old, I worked for Ted Forsman, who is a, you know, icon in private equity. And Ted used to say, you have to have potential, you have to have people, and then you get profits. And so I always thought, you know, we, we had a mutual friend whose wife came home from studying at Georgia State, and she was talking about the growth fundamentals of NASCAR. And so I got so tired of hearing about it, even though I wasn't necessarily a car guy. I went down to NASCAR and signed him up as a client. And based on the fact that I thought NASCAR had great potential, and as I worked more with them, I felt they had you know great potential to grow beyond what it was. As you point out, you know, 16 races were on the Nashville network. The network doesn't exist anymore, mostly Southeast, mostly auto parts companies. But I thought it had great potential. And what we did, you know, is go out and recruit really good people. So we recruited people from the NBA. We recruited people from Procter & Gamble. We recruited people from Disney. You know, I even brought in a number of Democrats into into NASCAR. Uh, And I had Democrats and Republicans. So I recruited a a guy. (laughs) Which I think it's, I mean, like, we understand it now in in 2020 as, uh, as sort of an obvious thing. But back then, that was probably... Different. People probably thought you Different, were insane, right? Right. right. So I, 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 so we had a Dale Earnhardt, our seven-time champion, was uh, you know died on national TV on Fox in front of 35 million people, and 
we were not where we needed to be in on the communication side, and I had been promoted to run the company like four weeks before. So I found Jody Powell, who used to be press secretary for President Carter, and he culturally really related well with the people at NASCAR, even though he was a Democrat. And so we had him come down and teach us the fundamentals of communication in a crisis. And we ended up hiring his chief of staff, who was we used to work for Richard Gephardt, and then we hired another gentleman who used to work for John Kerry. So we brought in the best minds, in this case, the political experts that were re- really good in crisis management ended up hiring them. So I think, again, part of the lesson you learn in NASCAR is you have to be in a growing situation, but then you have to bring in other talented people for you to take advantage of it and then partner with great people. So, you know, Coca-Cola was a great partner. You know, Fox, NBC were great partners, and there were you know, Nextel was a great partner. So partnering with companies that could really help you grow your business was an important thing. And then the other lesson I learned was working with your constituents. You know, when you're yeah. running a company or a, or, or a country, but in most countries, most companies are small countries, really, when you think about it. Managing your constituent base is an important thing. And so building relationships with the, the drivers and the tracks and aligning those interests were another important element of, of growth. So, um, again, potential was there. You know, you really needed to bring in the right people, and then, you know, then the profits came. And so that's kind of a simple formula, you know, I think, that, but those are key things, getting the right people working with you and then partnering right uh, with the right people to take you to places that on your own you really couldn't get to. What you learn about fans and consumers from NASCAR? Because I feel like it's an amazing window into America that, few of us who live on the coast fully appreciate you know you and I again have the benefit of having lived down south although Atlanta is a different sort of place but having moved around the south a lot as you have one understands that it's very easy to get trapped in that sort of New Yorker cartoon of like the the world just sort of drops off at the edge of Manhattan I would imagine you can't think like that it's impossible to think like that if you're running NASCAR yeah, no, that's exactly right. And so one of the things we did was we we did a really we we had to compete against all the pro sports leagues, you know, back in the 90s and they were perceived to be far more successful and had more resources. So the question was how do you compete with these people? And what we did is we did a lot of fan research. And what we understood was we really understood our fans and we contrasted our fans to how they fit other corporate brands and what made them special and unique. And I can still remember it. You know, we had these two binoculars. On one side was all the great elements of competition, you know, edge of the seat competition. You never know who's going to win. Great product. But mostly every sport could claim that. What we claimed was that NASCAR was like a big family. You know, people had, were, had a sense of belonging, a sense of family, and people who were straight up and athletes that you could admire. And we were fortunate at that time in the 90s where there were player strikes really for the first time. And we were able to use that, uh, hey, you know, our athletes are people like you. There's somebody you could admire. There's a sense of belonging that's unique to being a NASCAR fan. And what you find out is really it's not just the South. It's really C&D counties in New Hampshire and Maine and Illinois. And it's really a different contrast between the A and B counties and the C and D counties. And so we really 
drove that home to corporate America saying, look, these are your consumers. They're the people buying detergent. They're buying uh, all these consumer packaged goods. You want to reach these people, and they're passionate about what NASCAR stands for. And that was really, Jason, I hired a guy as a brand manager at Procter & Gamble, which at the time was unheard of in NASCAR. And, you know, he came in and helped us understand the demographics and psychographics of our fan base and then compared that, matched that up with the with the sponsors. And that's how we really told it. It had to be true, obviously, which it was. And it wasn't so much, again, a, a Southern phenomenon, right. but it was more of a C&D phenomenon. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, well, and I think, and you're right, that is a... I, I sort of showed my own bias to some extent thinking about it as a Southern thing, but you're right. It, it's a rest of the country sort of thing in, in many ways. And I feel like has only, I would imagine that you've been able to take those sorts of learnings, especially into 2020 America, where it, it feels like maybe we're not to delve into politics, but you know, we're as divided as ever in, in many ways. And, and even in, when you think about how people are viewing uh, the pandemic through political lenses, uh, I, I would imagine you take a lot of that with you as you understand fans and consumers going forward. Well, it's been an incredible ride when you think about, you know, I spent, as you point out, 17 years in the South uh, and, and, you know, the deep South. I'm talking to someone who spent weekends in um, Talladega, Alabama, Johnson City, Tennessee, Florence, South Carolina. You know, I have an. I have, and by the way, I, I, when I left NASCAR, I cried. So I, I, I loved it. From Massachusetts, went to Brown, came back, worked in New York for IMG. And IMG was a different situation, right? IMG was in 30 countries, and it was the high end of the high end. I mean, yeah. we, we we had clients like you know Giselle, and and we ran Fashion Week, and we worked worked at Wimbledon and and, and the British Open, and, and you know we were a global company, and that was really. I'll tell you a funny story. One of my first months on the job at IMG, I went to a fashion show in Sydney, Australia, as the president of the company, sat at the end of a, a runway, and I said, geez, I go, a month ago, I was at Talladega, Alabama, so it right. tells you how life life changes, but you are right. It's very different between the, the blue states and the red states, and the United States is very different than other states, and having to manage... Um, manage different people and work with different people is an important skill set. You know, ironically, you know, I went to Brown University, and one of the things Brown taught me was tolerance, understanding that, you know, I may not be like somebody else, but I should work with them and I should never prejudge them. That's what I got out of Brown. And, of course, the experience at Brown, where I, was, I came from a working home, a blue-collar family, to Brown, which was quite different, actually that experience helped me go to NASCAR, but going to NASCAR, actually, where people were different, helped me at IMG because when IMG, when you're running a staff meeting with people from all over the world that don't get along with one another, that's equally challenging. So all those experiences kind of you know build on one another. I'll tell you one funny story. So I opened up the first office ever outside of Daytona Beach in North Carolina, and uh, I called back to headquarters to file my report, and I said, I've got good news and bad news. I said, the bad news is nobody likes us. I mean, me being NASCAR and with the race teams, I said, the good news is nobody likes anybody else. Right. <laughs> so we, we've got an equal chance here to, right. to make progress. And to be quite honest, when you run a global company and you have different people from different regions of the world, having to blend and meld those people for a common goal, quite frankly, was no different than what I did at NASCAR. It was just a different set of people. And so it's all those set 
sets of experience in life that really make it different. You know, the French and Germans may not, you know, culturally get along, or the Italians and the Germans, or the British and the and the French. And so, you know, I remember when I first ran my first staff meeting at IMG in Europe, uh, like a couple months later, I said to myself, my gosh, I go, how does a diplomat get anything done? Right. <laughs> I said, these people work for me, and they don't want to listen to one word I say. Right. And Much so less each other, and, right? <laughs> right. And I had lunch one day with Mike Hill, who was a diplomat, and he, he was dealing with North Korea. And I said, man, I go, I go, I thought, how do you handle this? And he goes, very difficultly. But, you know, I learned a great, uh, great lesson once from Doug Isadell, who at the time was the chairman and CEO of Coca-Cola. And I had lunch with him one day, and I said, what? I go, how do you manage a global company? And he said, listen, he goes, you're going to want someone to go from point A to point B. And, you know, they might want to do it differently than you do. And he said, you got to let them do it as long as they get from point A to point B. And I thought that was great advice yeah. in managing uh, people from different regions. So, you know, the world the country is divided, the world also is very different. And it's really trying to find those common interests in finding ways to motivate people for a common goal that really I think is the trick. So you got to give me a Teddy Forsman story and you know and for listeners of a certain age you say like me you you say the name Teddy Forsman and especially having looked after the private equity beat for a long time anyone who read Barbarians at the Gate I mean this is a legendary Nancy or the late Teddy Forsman and had a, a massive impact on on so many parts of the financial world but also the world of sports th- through IMG and I do wonder I mean we could spend the rest of the day, I'm sure, telling Teddy Forsman or you telling Teddy Forsman stories. But I, I do wonder, what did you take from him? Because he was notoriously difficult, notoriously smart, obviously ambitious and, and driven. But that is not for the faint of heart, I would imagine. No, I mean, I, you know, I find myself quoting Ted all the time. I went to work for Ted when I was 40 years old, and Ted was probably 65 at the time. And I did it because I thought I could learn a lot. Which I did. You know, and the, some of the things people might find interesting about Ted, he was an incredibly generous person. He gave hundreds of millions of dollars to charity when he was alive, not only after he passed away. He was religious. He, you know, I traveled Europe with him once for two weeks, and we went to church in Paris and Germany. And so, so he's he incredibly religious, called his mother when she was alive every day. So there were incredibly great things about Ted. He was very difficult and very demanding and there's no and my office was with him I, I live my office is right next to his and he was tough I mean there's just no other way around it and my favorite story about Ted was of course that what I learned from Ted was structuring risk like Ted was really very negative about everything but if he found a way to minimize the risk uh, he was all in and there was no changing him and so, you know, one of my favorite stories about Ted was it was during the financial crisis, and we had an opportunity to buy a company in college sports and really kind of get a big, big position in college sports. And Ted walked into me, and we had to borrow money to do it, and he said, listen, we're going to have a tough conversation. I don't want you to say anything, and you're not going to like it, but that's too bad, and you need to fall in line. And he probably didn't say it that nice. Right. He said, listen, we're not going to borrow, we're not going to borrow, it's a hundred and some odd million dollars, we're not borrowing that money because the, the banks are like loan sharks and we're, we're just not going to, we're just not going to do it. And so I went home that night and I had a, 
with a colleague, had a, a couple glasses of wine, and about and Ted always read his emails. So at about ten o'clock at night, I emailed Ted and I said, I said, Ted, um, you know, I understand where you are. I said, but if you don't do this, it'll be like passing up on the rights to own the Premier League 30 years ago. And I go, you'll regret it, and it will be a big mistake, but I'll support you whatever you want to do. And it was a Thursday before uh, Memorial Day weekend. So the next morning, you know, I had little kids at the time, and I'm driving up to we have a place up in Cape Cod, and, and it's like 9 o'clock in the morning. And Ted, you know, is at this point probably 68 or 69, typically didn't come in at 10 or 10.30. And I get a call from Ted at 9 in the morning, and he goes, where are you? I said, I'm driving to Cape Cod. It's Memorial Day weekend. He goes, the company's at an inflection point. Turn around and get back here. We need to buy that company. So, you know, what you learned from Ted was he listened. Yeah. He analyzed. He thought. And uh, he managed risks. And, um, you know, I, I find myself quoting him probably at least every other day, if not every wow. day. I learned. I learned a lot from him. Uh, he was not easy, but, you know, he, I learned a, a great deal from him. Well, they say, you know, the great ones are never easy, right? That's part of what makes them great. Uh, so just as, as we wrap up here, I mean, I do wonder, you know, as you think about your company right now, you know, it, it feels like so much of your career really, not to be too grandiose about it, but sort of has been leading to this moment for, for Bruin in, in many ways. You know, what's, what does the next year, two years, three years look like in terms of opportunity for you and for the firm? And I'm guessing your answer may be a little bit different than it was when I asked you a similar question earlier this year, you know, given everything that, that's going on in the world. But as you, you know, sit and think about that, as you talk to your team, like, what do the next few years look like? Well, you know, first of all, having grown up in the business for 25 to 30 years, you know, I am very sad because um, my friends who were part of this industry and the industry that's been so great to me is going to be hard hit. There's just no way around it. And so I'm, I go into this, you know, concerned and worried about my friends in a business that's been been great uh, to me, uh, and I don't underestimate. There's no way to overstate that or, or underestimate those feelings. As it relates to Bruin, um, you know, we find ourselves in, 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 in really good position. Our companies, our, our CEOs have done a terrific job, and our leaders in their particular areas. So for our companies, I think they're going to come out of this, you know, stronger and, and better. And I think one of the things that you lose in a bull market is that, you know, one of the things if you criticize me is I, I didn't put much leverage on the companies because I always felt like we were going to create value by operations, not so much by financial structuring. So that doesn't look so great in a bull market, but in a market like today, having companies that aren't leveraged, it's really a blessing. And I think that you know who you do business with in a bull market probably get is, has less value and going forward i think as turbulent times there's more value put on you know who's backing you and and who you're dealing with so i think on the portfolio side our companies will come out bigger and stronger why because they're and I have two streaming companies. I have a design company. I think they're going to do quite well. I have a data company. So they're really going to benefit from the acceleration in technology. 
And then, you know, we just raised close to $700 million in um, November. Mm -hmm. So I do think there are going to be a number of opportunities that we uh, are going to see, and it could be a good time to invest behind the business. Because sports, while it's going to be hit hard in the next 12 to 36 months, long-term, I think sports will be strong. So they're probably, like other investment opportunities, will be good investment opportunities in the next 12 to 36 months um, because of the dislocation of the pandemic. And I think as a category, you know, sports is strong. So, I, you know, like anybody else, you got to pivot, you got to be resilient, and, you know, I'm more hopeful uh, than not uh, going forward. George Pine, what a treat. I'm so glad we got a chance to do this. I feel like it's a it's a long time coming in, in some ways, you know, as I said at the top, sort of a quarter century in the making. You know, who knew when we met at Billy Andrade's house, Billy and Jody Andrade's house many years ago, um, that we'd be sitting here talking about this. It's really a, a pleasure for me, so I really appreciate your time. I really enjoy it, and it's great to reconnect, and those are special times. And uh, And thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. All right, that's George Pine. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week online. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays when they drop. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. I'm Jason Kelly.